I'm Rachel. This is Deconstructing Disney. To all who come to this happy podcast, welcome! welcome. Who put the glad in gladiator? Hercules! Woo! It's so We're good. talking about <laughs> Hercules, everybody. Yay! 1997. We're making our way through the 90s, making good progress. It's we really exciting. are. <laughs> yeah, we really are. I am especially excited for this episode because this is one of the first times where I felt like my opinion of the film might depend more significantly on what I learned from you about the development and the history of it. Oh, okay. I'm all important. I'm You're excited. very <laughs> important. You're always important, but maybe especially so. Wow. Okay. I hope I do a great job. <laughs> 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 cool. Do you want to tell us what it's about first, and then you can tell me why you think that? <laughs> yes, I will tell us what Hercules is about. The film opens in a museum of ancient Grecian artifacts with boring Charlton Heston, <laughs> womp womp, providing a voiceover narration. However, he is quickly interrupted by The Muses, a five-woman gospel choir who provide exposition through the song Gospel Truth. During that exposition, we learn that Zeus, ruler of the Greek gods, trapped the Titans, these beings who caused mass destruction, in a vault. We then join what is present day in the timeline of our story, and we see a celebration taking place on Mount Olympus to honor the birth of Hercules, our title character. Hercules, Hercules, Hercules. <laughs> that one. That's beautiful. You got it. You nailed Thanks. it. Hercules <laughs> is the son of Zeus and Hera. Hades, god of the underworld, makes an appearance at this celebration and expresses his discontent with the current state of things. Hades then returns to the underworld where he consults with the Fates, who are three witch-like characters. The Fates reveal that Hercules might disrupt Hades' plan to release the Titans and take over the world in 18 years when the planets will be aligned. Hades would love to just kill Hercules and nip that in the bud, but because it's not possible to kill a god, Hades sends his two henchmen named Pain and Panic to kidnap Hercules force feed him a potion that will turn Hercules into a mortal and then kill him. However, pain and panic are interrupted by two humans, Alcmene and Amphitryon. Nice. Good job. Amphitryon. Yeah. <laughs> Some of these are tricky. Yeah. Those ancient Greeks. <laughs> I know. So they interrupt before Hercules can drink the last drop of the potion. Pain and panic abandon Hercules, who is then adopted by Alcmene and Amphitryon. However, because he didn't drink the last drop, he retains superhuman strength. Fast forward to Hercules, or Herc, as a teenager. 
with this unnatural strength that he can't control. We see him inadvertently cause mass destruction at the <laughs> local marketplace, and he's socially ostracized for this. Herc expresses his desire for belonging in the song, Go the Distance. And when his adoptive parents reveal that they, in fact, adopted them, Hercules travels to the Temple of Zeus seeking answers about where he came from. In the temple, the statue of Zeus comes alive and reveals to Hercules that he is, in fact, a god. He is, in fact, the son of Zeus and, in this story, Hera. (laughs) And if Hercules can prove himself a true hero on Earth, his godhood will be restored and he can return to Mount Olympus, where he ostensibly belongs. Hercules is also reunited with Pegasus, his childhood companion, who is a flying horse. Hercules and Pegasus then seek out Philoctetes, or Phil, a satyr who is known as a trainer of heroes. After Hercules completes his training with Phil, he encounters Megara, or Meg, an apparent damsel in distress. Hercules rescues her despite her protestations. After this, Hercules heads on to Thebes, and we learn that Meg is actually working for Hades because she is indebted to him and forced to do his bidding. When Hades realizes that Hercules is still alive, he devises a a plan to kill him. Meg lures Hercules into a valley where he fights and wins against the Hydra. We then hear the song Zero to Hero, a montage that shows us Hercules' ascent to fame and fortune through the fighting of monsters. There are a lot of references to merchandise (laughs) that I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh Uh-huh. Hades is really frustrated by this because Hercules is handling every curveball Hades tries to throw at him. And we learn a little bit more about Meg's background. She is working for Hades because she sold her soul to him in order to save her boyfriend's life. However, her boyfriend then left her for another woman. So Meg is such a jerk. Such a jerk. So Meg is quite embittered and uh, yeah, embittered. That's the word for it. Yep. (laughs) Got it on the first try. (laughs) (laughs) Hades then realizes he can use Meg and promises her her freedom back if she successfully determines what Hercules's weakness is so that Hades can exploit that. So Meg convinces Hercules to play hooky from his hero duties for a day, and they go on a date and actually start to fall in love. Phil interrupts them and sends Hercules back to his training. Meg, with accompaniment from the muses, sings, I won't say I'm in love. Phil, however, then overhears Hades talking to Meg and urging her on with the plan. Phil doesn't listen long enough to learn that Meg is now trying to refuse to continue helping Hades now that she's developed feelings for Hercules. A classic film misunderstanding that I hate. (laughs) 
Yeah, this is kind of your least favorite narrative device. Isn't Just it? listen for <laughs> 10 more seconds. This is my problem with this movie. This is my problem with White Christmas. Like, <laughs> I mean, I also have a problem with the like blackface and White Christmas and like, you know, mm-hmm. minstrelsy, but this is a Disney podcast. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Definitely no minstrelsy or blackface in the history of Disney that we need to worry about, right? (laughs) Never. Oh, gosh. (laughs) So because of this misunderstanding, Phil and Hercules argue. Hercules actually hits Phil in a pretty violent way. And Phil is like, all right, peace. I'm out of here. Hades then appears and makes a deal with Hercules. Hercules agrees to give up his strength for 24 hours as long as no harm will come to Meg during that time. Meg is trying to tell Hercules not to take the deal, but Hades has her restrained. So Hercules goes through with it and Hades then reveals that Meg has actually been working for him. Of course, this news devastates Hercules. He now understands what Phil was trying to tell him. The planets have now aligned, so Hades seizes this opportunity to free the Titans and sends the Titans to Mount Olympus to take over. And Hades also sends the Cyclops to kill Hercules while he's in his totally mortal weakling form. Hercules still manages to outsmart the Cyclops, but a pillar nearly falls on him. Meg manages to push Hercules out of the way, but she is injured. This invalidates Hades' deal, and Hercules' strength is returned to him, so he is able to rush to Mount Olympus, where he and Zeus are able to work together to defeat the Titans. Meanwhile, Meg dies. Hercules then races to the underworld, And Hades agrees to allow Hercules to dive into the river of death and retrieve her soul as long as Hercules takes her place. Hades assumes that Hercules will die before he reaches her. However, it is this act of heroism that transforms Hercules into a god. Because a true hero, as Zeus later says, a true hero isn't measured by the size of his strength, but by the strength of his heart. Hercules emerges from the river in this transformed state, carrying Meg's soul, which he returns to her body. Now a true hero, Hercules is welcomed home to Mount Olympus, but he chooses to remain mortal and stay on Earth with Meg. The end. Yeah, the end. Wow. Now you have to tell me why you have a reserved opinion. What's Kitty Rachel think? What's modern Rachel think? Yes. So Kitty Rachel liked this movie. I always really loved the music. The gospel music is so moving and impactful. But that is actually one of my misgivings watching it now. I want to hear more about the process of choosing gospel music. For this specific film, I I understand that it's a take on the Greek chorus, Mm -hmm. but it feels like maybe it could be a little bit exploitative because it's just African-American music in a film full of white people. Mm -hmm. Very curious about that decision making. I 
enjoyed watching it the first time for my research for this episode. There were a lot of parts of it that made me laugh. This script is jam-packed with puns. Oh my gosh, yeah. (laughs) But then when I rewatched it this morning, just to refresh my memory, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, it's all right. Mm. It wasn't like an immediate enjoyment of it again the way I have felt with other films we've discussed recently, like obviously The Hunchback of Notre Mm -hmm. Dame, (laughs) (laughs) or I'm thinking specifically of The Little Mermaid, which I watched first and was like, oh, yeah, this is a good one, and then watched it again and was like, yeah, I really, really do like this. So, yeah. What about you? This is a, quote, boy movie. So it is. Yeah. <laughs> what's that mean in terms of your thoughts? That means that I also liked it when I was a kid, but I think I liked the music the best. Mm-hmm. Once again, Disney's greatest hit CDs. <laughs> <laughs> there were several of these songs on there. I loved, I won't say I'm in love, thought I it was know. like peak feminism. <laughs> I was like seven years old. (laughs) But also, like, I think there was a little bit of feeling like I'm supposed to like this movie. Oh. Because it is fantasy, action, adventure. And then the, like, little bit of, like, intellectualism that comes from it being based on, like, Greek mythology. Mm. And the more you know about Greek mythology, the more of the, like, jokes you'll get. Sure. So I felt like the smarter folks like Hercules and I wanted to be among the smarter folks. Okay. But it was never, you know, it's no Lion King, obviously. Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) But I think watching it now, it mostly was just fine. Like, Mm. it's funny. I definitely laughed at it. Um, I don't find Hercules himself very compelling. And Mm. I think that is probably a big piece of what it comes down to like if you don't super care about the protagonist then like meh sure (laughs) what about him doesn't feel compelling for you I think he just really is like wonder bread wonder boy (laughs) yeah you know like Uh he's very simplistic he's kind of annoying Mm -hmm. especially when he's the big strong guy who can beat every single monster in existence I'm like okay like I don't really care about that (laughs) Um, he also looks a little bit like the beast in human form (laughs) which i know is not your favorite wow gonna need to unpack that for a minute Mm -hmm. i know that might be part of it (laughs) (laughs) Uh, this story feels a little try hard in all of the like anachronistic jokes and stuff Mm. But I still, I like the music. Mm -hmm. I think there is a good bit of like complexity to the plot Mm -hmm. while still being well-paced and easy to follow. Mm -hmm. So like it's it's good. It's enjoyable. But it's not special, I think, in the way each Mm. of the films we've looked at before has something like special about them. This feels very like Mm. mass market, meant for everyone, super commercial, snappy. I would agree that the pacing is really good good the story is really strong so it does definitely keep you engaged I think the performances are really good especially Mm -hmm. James Woods I yeah (laughs) have so many issues with him as a person in real life but his performance as Hades is incredible yeah 
it's the best part of the film. I it think. really He's is. really good. Mm-hmm. And Susan Egan as Meg, I think, yeah. is great. But I agree, it feels a little hollow. The mm. mm-hmm. overarching moral feels a little trite and expected. Yeah, hollow, I think, is a nice word for it. Shiny on the outside, not a whole lot of meat in there. Will you set us up for the Hercules background? I will. I am not a huge fan of Greek mythology mm. or Roman mythology, any mythology, really, I suppose. <laughs> any, the Norse gods hate them. <laughs> I mean, kind of. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time going into the background of Greek mythology. But just to give some context Hercules is actually the Roman version of that name. He's known as Heracles in Greek mythology. Heracles is referenced in numerous classic Greek texts, including plays by Euripides, Sophocles, and Aeschylus. He is also mentioned by Ovid in the Odyssey. But the story is very different. Yeah. From what we see in the Disney film, most notably, Heracles was not actually the son of Hera, but he was the product of an affair that Zeus had with a mortal woman, Alcmene, who in this film is depicted as Hercules's adoptive mother. So Hera is sort of the villain in Heracles's story. Heracles goes insane because of a curse that Hera places upon him. He murders his wife, Megara, and all of his children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's very dark. Very yeah. Dark story. The only other thing that is helpful to mention is that Heracles is also known as having these 12 labors that he has to go through. And I think all 12 of them are depicted or mentioned in some Mm -hmm. way throughout the film. And I think that is one of those points that you were just mentioning, Aaron, in terms of like, the more you know about mythology, the more of the jokes you catch on to. And I am probably going to step on your toes a little bit in terms of the critical response. (laughs) In terms of the critical response that Hercules received, there were a lot of people who were angry that it diverted so drastically from the original story. (laughs) Yeah. So I had a couple quotes that I wanted to share. One is from Ward, who wrote Mouse Morality. I mentioned Mm. that text for our last episode on Hunchback as well. And there's a chapter in this book for Hercules. But Ward says, quote, Disney's Hercules is a carefully researched, meticulously planned hodgepodge of Greek myths sanitized according to Disney's formula in order to achieve its preferred message of youth self-discovery and romantic achievement, end quote. Mm-hmm. Hall, writing for the Chicago Tribune, referred to this film as a, quote, pastel version that desecrates the substance and spirit <laughs> of mythology itself. End oh, quote. oh, of mythology <laughs> itself. That's right. Huh? That's right. You know, y'all, you can't have it both ways. Do you want <laughs> them to talk about sin and hellfire and whatnot, or don't you? 
Like, do we really want Hercules to murder his wife and his children <laughs> or not? Like, kids movie or not? Like, we're, what? <laughs> Can we have some consensus here, please? Yeah, that's a great point. And it's almost like the issue is the source material that Disney is choosing to adapt. Oh, wow. <laughs> if people are so annoyed with the way that Disney's choosing to adapt the source material, maybe it's because the source material isn't that appropriate. Mm, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Aaron, tell us about the development of this film. Okie dokie. We're going back to gong shows. Which is referenced in the song, One Last Hope. Phil sings, a fella who'd ring the bell for once, not the gong. <laughs> but I'm... Um, <laughs> Wow, that's the most in of in jokes for Disney. That's right. Okay. At a gong show in early 1992, a pitch for an adaptation of The Odyssey was approved mm. and oh. entered production, but it was eventually canceled because it just wasn't translating well to an animated feature. Like, <laughs> it was too long. It wasn't appropriate for children, uh -huh. all sorts of things. But at the time, an animator named Joe Hadar still believed that Greek mythology could like work and be a good place to be grabbing stories from. So he showed up to another gong show with a sketch of Hercules and a two page outline of a story about like the Trojan War, where Hercules would be like a weapon. The sides were trying to to get on their side each. Hmm. And that idea was approved. But Hayter wasn't assigned to the project, and that is the end of his involvement. During that time of those gong shows, Ron Clements and John Musker, who I will be referring to as Ron and John for the rest of this episode, because that's <laughs> that is who they are. That's how everyone refers to them. And I am cool enough and I know enough that I could call them Ron and John too. <laughs> that's right. You're on a first name basis. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so Ron and John had returned to working on their idea for Treasure Planet, which is their dream movie that Disney refused to greenlight, and they keep pitching it over and over again. They thought that the success of Aladdin in 1992, on top of their legacy with The Little Mermaid, like both of which they had directed, had done extremely well. They were like, they, the studio has to have faith in us and will let us do Treasure Planet now, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> you got to wait a few more years, guys. Just a few more years. Yeah. So a man named Jeffrey Katzenberg was standing in their way. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Katzenberg did not like the idea for Treasure Planet. He didn't think it would have a broad appeal and he wanted to replicate the success of Aladdin and get these filmmakers to just keep doing the kind of big showy commercial things they had been doing so far. Mm -hmm. So he offered them a deal where if they developed one of the existing commercial broad appealing pitches that the studio already had, he would then let them make Treasure Planet afterward. Mm, okay. And Ron and John agreed to do this. Mm-hmm. Of course, Katzenberg left Disney before he could make good on this promise. Mm. But side note, after his departure, Michael Eisner had lunch with Ron and John and told them that he was super excited to get Treasure Planet going soon after Hercules because Ron and John maybe were thinking about leaving Disney. Like it wasn't oh. certain, but with mm -hmm. Katzenberg gone, there was a lot of things up in the air. So Eisner was basically trying to lay it as bait to keep them around 
Mm. And it worked and they stayed and they obviously do get to make that movie. Mm -hmm. But we'll talk about that later. Yep. (laughs) So they turned down several pitches for whatever this hyper commercial movie they were going to make was. But they liked Hater's Hercules idea, thinking that it could be like a superhero movie vibe. Mm. They saw parallels to Michael Jordan in the way that Hercules was revered in his time Hmm. with like iconography everywhere, Mm -hmm. literally slapping his face on every vase. (laughs) So they quickly made that connection also to merchandising potential, Mm -hmm. both in film and in real life, and figured that was one way to capture the commercial angle that Katzenberg really wanted from the film. Mm -hmm. Many people have pointed out, though, that the film pokes fun at Disney's obsession with merchandising and that's interpreted as Disney showing like it's not taking itself too seriously but it actually may have been like an intentional jab at Katzenberg by Ron and John oh interesting huh (laughs) like you want it commercial we'll make it commercial So they also wanted to take inspiration from screwball comedies and they quickly moved away from both the Trojan War idea and much of the traditional mythological Hercules story because it was not appropriate for children and Mm -hmm. they were going for broad appeal and not murder. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why they made the changes. Katzenberg was thrilled with Ron and John's pick because he figured Hercules was a well-known name that would make the movie appealing to a wide-ranging audience, and Ron and John's focus on comedy and like a superhero vibe sounded perfect. Mm -hmm. Ron and John started writing the treatment and brought in comedy writers Donald McErnie and Bob Shaw, who are stand-up comics and Emmy-nominated writers for Seinfeld. Oh. As well as Disney veteran Irene Mechie. Andy Gaskill was brought in as art director, having previously been in the art department for Little Mermaid, and he art directed The Lion King, folks Mm. might remember. And I personally think the colors of The Lion King and Hercules are very similar. Like, you can kind of feel Gaskill in the palette that Mm. is chosen. Mm Mm-hmm. But, like, the backgrounds and the characters don't feel like they have the same depth and attention to detail as they did in The Lion King. Agreed. And in The Lion King, like, we talked about how Gaskell was so focused on, like, the vastness of the savanna and the depth and the feeling. Mm -hmm. And that's not what Hercules is trying to do. Like, that's not Mm -hmm. the point. It is Mm -hmm. a bit more superficial. It's more focused on comedy. So I think that is the, the major difference in why, like, it looks like that mm-hmm. from Gaskill's perspective. I noticed there were a lot of stylistic choices in the character design, in the shapes of like ears and chins and joints. Yes. yes. That work with the Greek mythology setting stylistically, I think, but also come across as kind of lazy or mm. that they lack the realism or the detail of something like the Lion King or even Hunchback. Correct. All correct and intentional. Ah, okay. (laughs) So all of that is Gerald's scarf. Hmm. The film is heavily influenced by his involvement. He was an English cartoonist who was the production designer for the film. This is the first time Disney has brought in an outside production designer for an animated Mm. film. Oh, hmm. He had done like 
political cartoons and pop culture cartoons. He's pretty controversial, like takes a lot of stabs at different political figures and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And he has that really sharp edged design, but also has like a lot of curly cues. I listened to an interview with Andreas Deja and he was like, just curly cues everywhere. So I started just (laughs) slapping them on Hercules. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, super angular and sharp and like a lot of movement in his drawings. And Mm -hmm. you can easily see it once you've seen Scarf's illustrations. Hmm. So Ron and John thought that this exaggerated style would work well for the film's like satirical vibe Mm, mm -hmm. and it does have similarities to the styles of ancient greek art as Mm -hmm. well so they thought they could kind of just overlay the two Mm. andy gaskell actually has a quote where he explains the look particularly well quote one of the characteristic things about scarf's drawings is a sort of spikiness or swoopiness his characters are so sharp you could cut yourself on them we began to incorporate the sharp, pointy design element, we call them scarfy shapes, into <laughs> our layout and backgrounds. Even the clouds have spikes on them instead of being soft, amorphous objects you would normally expect. The result is a more fantastic and exaggerated look than we've ever done before, which can be quite humorous or sinister, depending on how it's used. Mm, yeah. So Scarf was excited by Disney's interest, which I think kind of surprised them because he had done these much more controversial political things beforehand. Mm-hmm. And he turned in 32 initial sketches for Hercules and the team loved it. And they hired him as production designer and he would go on to produce more than 700 drawings for the film. Wow. Scarf was living at London in the time. So there was a lot of faxing and mailing and whatnot, <laughs> but he also wanted to be as involved as possible so he gave feedback on how to make like secondary characters look more scarfian mm. and the backgrounds to make them look more scarfian so there would be like a unity to the film because mm. it would be weird if like the backgrounds were traditional Disney, but the main characters in the front were so scarfian. It just would feel strange. Mm-hmm. So Disney was fully on board, but production stylist Sue Nichols developed reference charts for the animators on which elements of scarf style to incorporate where versus aspects of classical Greek paintings to adapt and then where to retain like a classically Disney look. Hmm. So like baby Pegasus, for example, was carefully kept Disney-fied and squishy and round Mm. for merchandising purposes so Ah. that they could sell it as a plush. Of course, of course. (laughs) On to the characters. Hercules' look was inspired by Elvis Presley, Chris O'Donnell, and Tom Cruise. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) They wanted him to be awkward, sensitive, vulnerable. He was animated by Andreas Deja, who wanted to try something different from his usual villains. Mm -hmm. And Hercules was voiced by Tate Donovan. Mm -hmm. Susan Egan, who plays Meg, had been auditioning for... Disney voice roles since Beauty and the Beast. Oh. And she eventually landed the role of Belle on Broadway for that production's debut in 1994. Okay. Egan wanted to audition for Meg in Hercules, but Alan Menken stood in her way, (laughs) Mm. did not want her to play the part. Here's a quote from Egan about it. 
Quote, Alan Menken initially blocked me from going after that part. He said that the female lead in Hercules was supposed to be this cynical smartass, sounding nothing at all like sweet, innocent Belle. But what Alan didn't seem to understand is that whenever I was playing Belle, I was acting. Whereas <laughs> Meg, well, that's how I am in real life. <laughs> oh, wow. So she was allowed to audition. Everyone thought she was absolutely perfect for the role. Mm-hmm. She was really confident in her ability to play Meg, mm-hmm. but she was intimidated when it came time to record I Won't Say I'm in Love, which mm. is a 60s style doo-wop number with mm-hmm. backup vocals provided by the Muses, who were voiced by extremely talented black Broadway singers and mm-hmm. actresses who had gospel and Motown backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So here is another great quote from Egan. Quote, I've never felt so white and square in a room (laughs) as the day we recorded that song. I bet. Alan would say, okay, Lilius, just do a riff over there. And LaShawn's, you do a little something over here. And Susan, just at the end, get from this note to this note and just do a riff. I raise my hand and I'm like, um, can you plunk it out on the piano? (laughs) He looks at me are you kidding? (laughs) They give him 20 beautiful takes, all different. It was terrible. It was so humbling. (laughs) And she ends up doing a pretty good job, I would say. Uh For Hades, Ron and John wanted Jack Nicholson. Sure. I could see that. Almost the genie impression of Jack Nicholson in Aladdin kind of feels like Hades. Yes, it does. Absolutely. Jack Nicholson actually came to the studio for a tour along with his daughter. His daughter was dressed as Snow White for the visit. So sweet. (laughs) Nicholson was excited. He was clearly interested, but he turned down Disney's offer of $500,000 for the role. Huh. Nicholson had been paid somewhere between 10 and $15 million dollars for playing the Joker in Warner Brothers' 1986 Batman, which was 10 years ago. Right. He's only become more famous. Mm -hmm. And he had been given a cut of the merchandising of the Joker. Oh. Oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Disney Disney didn't want to do that. Yeah, 500,000 is not going to cut it here. No. Yeah, he asked for basically the same thing somewhere between 10 and 15 million and a 50% cut of the Hades merchandise and Disney refused. So Nicholson walked. Yeah, sure. So then a number of other actors auditioned for the role and James Woods's audition sat in the maybe pile for Mm. a long time because Mm. his schmoozy, abrasive Hollywood agent style approach wasn't what they'd initially envisioned for like the dark, moody, scary Hades. Mm -hmm. But every time people listened to it, it was funny and his improvisation, even in the audition, was surprising and impressive. So eventually they realized that his Hades fit the anachronistic comedy style of the film even better than what they'd imagined. Very much, yeah. So they were like, great, okay, James Woods, it is, we're going with his vision. Nick Rainieri animated Hades, taking inspiration from Scarf's drawings. Obviously, he's very spiky. Um, (laughs) And Woods' mannerisms. And he is hand-drawn, except for his hair, which was animated by the effects team. Hmm. Mm -hmm. For Phil, Ron and John wanted Danny DeVito right off the bat, and he was quick to sign up. 
no issues there. Great. Animator Eric Goldberg, who had previously animated The Genie and directed Pocahontas, was originally going to animate Hades because he was being played by Nicholson and Goldberg was excited about that. Mm. But when Nicholson left the project, he wasn't as enthusiastic anymore. So he moved over to animating Phil when he heard Danny DeVito was cast. Mm. And Phil's look is primarily inspired by Danny DeVito. (laughs) (laughs) That's not very flattering. (laughs) Sorry, Danny. (laughs) But it also takes aspects from Grumpy in Snow White, Mm. from Bacchus slash Dionysus in Fantasia, Mm -hmm. and a bit from Goldberg himself, who is also short, bald, and self-described as a little, quote, soft around the middle. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sure. Final character is the Hydra. Mm. which was the first fully computer animated character in a traditionally animated Disney feature. Mm. The computer animated Hydra was designed by Scarf before being taken over by the computer animation team that was led by Roger Gould. It was first sculpted as a clay model, then digitized into a wireframe model, and the animators created one master head for the Hydra and Mm -hmm. then multiplied it digitally until it reached the 30 that they needed by the Mm -hmm. end of that scene. And then they animated each one kind of like they did the crowd in The Feast of Fools for Hunchback, Mm -hmm. but with significantly more detail and individualized motion per head. Mm Mm-hmm. And that four-minute battle sequence with Hercules took the team two and a half years to create. Wow. a lot of work. I know that it is impressive, of course. It is very jarring in terms of (laughs) its lack of integration into the style of the film, I think. Yes, it looks very different. Yeah. I read a lot about how, like, they tried really hard. And, like, I think they thought they had succeeded in making it meld with the style but it's like just hercules like slapped on a digital background Mm -hmm. and then the the rock in the back is lacking detail so much that like Mm kind of feels like a green screen and Mm. obviously we've seen much better digital animations since then so it's hard for us to like revert our brains Mm -hmm. but i yeah i did not think it looked very good yeah I appreciate it. I get that it was hard and impressive, but Mm -hmm. we've talked about more impressive digital animation and the way it's been integrated. So, yeah. Sorry, Hercules. Mm -hmm. This is Alan Menken's last Disney Renaissance Mm -hmm. film. Shad. So sad. (laughs) I love Alan Menken so much. He composed this score and wrote the songs with David Zippel who is best known for the 1989 musical City of Angels. Mm-hmm. It's a good musical. It's good. Great. <laughs> David Zippel hasn't done a whole lot. No. I did have to edit David Zippel's Wikipedia page while doing <laughs> research for this because they had the wrong year for Hercules. Oh. So I had to fix it and make it 1997. Wow. Good job, Rachel. Yeah, I mean, you are welcome, Internet, for fixing this grievous error. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, I just want to say awards-wise that Go the Distance was nominated for both the Oscar and the Golden Globe for Best Original Song, but it did not win. Not even with Michael Bolton singing it in the (laughs) credits? (laughs) Not even. Wow. Go the Distance is possibly my favorite disney song wow love that song oh 
Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the muses. Yeah, let's do it. Ron and John credit the inspiration for the muses as a Greek chorus and narrators to Howard Ashman's influence. Oh, wow. Okay. So Ashman always used to give them theater recommendations when they would visit New York. Mm-hmm. And he had once suggested that they see the show The Gospel of Colonists. Hmm. Ron and John did not end up having time to actually see the show, but they did listen to the cast album. The show features the device of a Pentecostal preacher and his choir telling the story of Oedipus. And John thought the muses could fill a similar role in Hercules. Mm -hmm. Here's a quote from John Musker. It seemed appropriate to have a Greek chorus tell us this story, this being, after all, the story of a Greek demigod. And who better than the muses, the goddesses who inspired art, literature, and science to be this Greek chorus? And since our chorus was to sing about the exploits of the gods, having them sing gospel, a type of music that celebrates God, seemed appropriate. It was a short step from there to seeing them as an all-girl group like the Supremes and having them musically bridge scenes, do exposition, comment on action, and celebrate the exploits of our mythic hero. All of that makes a lot of sense. And again, love the music. It does still feel like there's a little bit of exploitation or lack of reverence for gospel music. Mm, Yeah. It feels like it cheapens it a little bit to remove it from the context of actual religious worship. Mm -hmm. The Motown, the doo-wop, like all of that is really cool. And I love to see that that style of music celebrated and platformed in something like a Disney movie. But I guess I still feel a little challenged with the concept overall. Yeah. I mean, the muses are a tool. They are there to serve the story and the other characters. Mm -hmm. And like all of these other characters are even whiter than they might have been as potential real people in Greece. (laughs) Yeah. I agree that black music is being used to support basically a white story. Mm -hmm. That doesn't feel great, even with the extreme talent and as good as the songs are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's important to note that Ashman and Mencken had used a black girl group as a Greek chorus in Little Shop of Horrors. Yes. And so Mencken was concerned it would feel derivative for Mm. them to do it again in Hercules. Hmm. Mankin wanted them to go more classical, thinking of something like Candide, mm. but Ron and John thought that would feel too stiff and inaccessible, so they stuck with it, and Mankin eventually relented. Hmm. But Little Shop of Horrors is so different, and it's set in an urban environment. Mm. There seems to be more congruence with the use of Motown and that setting and story than there is in Hercules. Yeah. Like it feels like a grab for one more way to make the audience care, one more way to make this movie shiny Mm -hmm. rather than it being like the natural choice. Mm -hmm. But I do agree the natural choice is probably less interesting and would Mm -hmm. not have been as successful. So like their train of thought was correct in getting the, the end goal that they wanted But are those the right choices to be making from the get-go? Yeah. So moving on towards premiere day. On the marketing side, Disney had a five-month promotional tour called Disney's Hercules Mega Mall Tour. (laughs) Sponsored by Chevy. 
Um. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> what? There aren't any cars in this movie. There are in America, Rachel, where the viewers live. <laughs> There's even a line that references the Ford Pinto in the movie, not even a Chevy model. Oh my God, that's so true. I wonder if Chevy was mad. <laughs> well, the mm, the Pinto didn't exactly do a lot to improve Ford's reputation, so... They probably didn't mind (laughs) reminding people about that debacle. Yeah, they're like, want a better car? Come to Chevy. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Amazing. Okay, so the mega mall tour was a lot like the tours for Pocahontas and Hunchback that we've talked about. This one included a stage show, a miniature baby Pegasus-themed carousel, a carnival with Hercules-themed games, And to me, the coolest bit is that there was a 10-minute animation workshop hosted by Andreas Deha where he taught kids to draw Hercules. Yes, that sounds very cool. But I, for the life of me, could not find if he was there in person or if they mean like a 10-minute recorded video where he like gives an instructional thing and like Mm. kids draw. Mm Mm-hmm. The film premiered at the New Amsterdam Theater in New York City, which Disney had recently purchased and renovated Mm. on June 14th, 1997. Afterward, Disney's Main Street Electrical Parade made its way from 42nd Street to 59th in New York City with a new Hercules float leading the way. Do 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 do. Yeah, that one! A classic. Yeah, and apparently they had like old floats that were like not as nice as the new shiny ones they were using in Disney World so they like used the old shabby floats for the New York City parade it still looked good but like some of the bulbs were out Uh uh-huh so this was a significant controversy of this parade being allowed to take over 24 city blocks of Manhattan. It caused horrible traffic jams. <laughs> Additionally, 5,000 businesses and residential buildings along the parade route were asked to dim their lights during the parade. Wow. So like a lot of Manhattan went dark for this to happen. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine being like a normal person just trying to like get to dinner or something right. on this evening and just being like, oh, Disney just shut down New York, shut down like Times Square for this. Right, right, yeah. So a lot of people were upset, but this was part of Disney expanding its presence in New York City. They had a retail store in Times Square now, joined by the ownership of the New Amsterdam Theater. Mm. And this was part of the Disney company's cooperation with the city of New York to, quote, revitalize Times Square, Mm -hmm. which back in the earlier 90s and 80s had like a lot of pornographic theaters and crime rates were high in the area and all that sort of stuff that New York didn't want and wanted it to be just like a tourist haven, which is kind of what it is today. Mm -hmm. So in addition to that contract of opening the new theater, the city had to evict the pornographic theaters. And then in addition, they ended up pricing out a lot of the lower income residents in Mm -hmm. the neighborhood to Mm -hmm. bring in tourist attractions like Madame Tussauds and AMC movie theaters and 
bigger shops and things. There's some pretty interesting commentary on New York City. Oops, I mean Thebes in the film. (laughs) The Big Olive. That's right. That's right. It's depicted as a place with a lot of devastation, high crime rates, uh, not depicted very lovingly or favorably. Yeah, yeah. Just a note that after the parade, there was a private party at Chelsea Piers where the guests were serenaded by Susan Egan while they (laughs) ate dinner and treated to a fireworks display. (laughs) Okay, sure. All right. So Hercules ended up with a budget of $85 million, even more than Hunchback, which was already excessively expensive. Right. No one in, like, my research is talking about the budget anymore, Hmm. and I assume it's just because Disney is rolling in cash and, like, maybe it's not as a concern, but, like, $85 is so much higher than, like, even, like, Aladdin was Mm -hmm. just a couple years ago, Mm -hmm. and, like, is anyone concerned? No one seems stressed. I don't know. I guess it's fine. (laughs) I think it must be because merchandising has exploded the way that it has. Yeah. Probably true. Spoiler, it didn't make a ton of money as a film, but I wonder if Disney just doesn't care because they don't need the film itself to make money. They know that they're going to reap in the profit with all the merchandising, with the way that it's going to help perpetuate the Disney brand so that people go to the theme parks and they make money through all of those other avenues. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, they were still hoping that the film would like, double the budget in its gross Mm. in North America at least so like I guess that was enough for them but how much did it actually make yeah not that much Mm -hmm. it ended up grossing 99 million dollars domestically yikes yeah but 253 million internationally okay not shabby Mm -hmm. but yeah not crossing the 100 million dollar mark is not good Mm mm-hmm Reception-wise, as we talked about earlier, a lot of people were mad <laughs> about the reimagining of Hercules' story, mm-hmm. but everybody loved James Woods. Mm-hmm. Most of the reviews I read gave him about the same value as like Robin Williams playing the genie in mm-hmm. Aladdin, mm-hmm. just a different kind of comedy, but they mm-hmm. thought he pretty much filled the same role and was almost as successful. Janet Maslin of the New York Times Loved the film, called it ingenious and divine, (laughs) said that Disney was back in top form after a run of disappointments. Roger Ebert was overall positive about the film in a pretty boring review. Mm -hmm. But in contrast, Gene Siskel gave the film two out of four stars Mm. and wrote, quote, Woods is funny, but the rest of the story is generic rite of passage material. Mm -hmm. And the biggest surprise is how soft and cheap the animation looks. This Hercules doesn't even look like a Disney film. Huh. Hmm. A lot of people were not fans of the scarf-inspired art design Mm. and didn't know to attribute it to the scarf influence. Mm -hmm. They just were like, it's different and it's weird and I don't like it. And I think that's kind of how I feel, too. Mm. Like, I don't, it just doesn't feel as detailed and as Disney. And Mm -hmm. yeah, Dessen Howe for the Washington Post called the film insipid and lifeless. (laughs) (laughs) Thought that Thebes looked like, quote, a hastily sketched field trip location. (laughs) (laughs) 
and said that, quote, no self-respecting immortal would be seen dead in this simplistic rendition of Mount Olympus, Mm. which I think is very fair. Mount Olympus is just a bunch of like clouds that the gods are standing on. Like they didn't Mm. do anything in that first party scene. Yeah, that's true. But my favorite review comes from Rita Kempley with the Washington Post. Rita wrote, quote, Chock full of celeb cameos, puns, and contemporary camp, the movie is annoyingly hip. It wants to belong even more desperately than its title character, who yearns to be a god almost as much as Pinocchio wanted to be just plain human. Hercules, alas, is hardly in the same class with the emotionally compelling Pinocchio, although on many occasions its hulking hero seems just as wooden. (laughs) (laughs) Annoyingly hip. Sure. Kind of how I feel about it now. I would be a little softer. It doesn't quite annoy, but I feel it wanting to connect with me and I say, stop it. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) That is the history. That's the gospel truth right there. That's that's the gospel truth. Check the bibliography. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Thank you for that. I feel like the context for this film is especially helpful because it does diverge so drastically from the classic animation style and and even the tone of the story and all of that. So thank you. Yeah. Do you already feel like you have a better sense of how you feel about the film after the history? Mm. Um. Does Rachel like it better or worse? <laughs> Right. Um, I think I like it maybe a little better in terms of feeling more appreciation for what they were doing stylistically with the art. It now feels more purposeful and less lazy, which was (laughs) my initial read on it, as I mentioned. And I appreciate the rationale behind the music choices a little bit Mm. more. Although, as we said, they're still problematic for different reasons. But I don't think that context is going to make me want to watch the movie more or enjoy it while I'm watching it that much more. Yeah, agreed. So we have our typical themes and talking points. But before we dive in, it's worth mentioning that we have just a little bit of an orphan narrative here. We know how I love to harp on this. Rachel loves an orphan. I love an orphan. (laughs) Perhaps it's my experience as a social worker in foster care. I don't know. Yes, it definitely is. (laughs) But I did find the part of the narrative around Hercules's desire for belonging really resonant in terms of the experience of folks who are adopted or have been in foster care that felt very emotionally real to me and I appreciated that mm-hmm. yeah. that's really all I wanted to say about it beyond just saying like look at Disney doing it again <laughs> check the box <laughs> they love an orphan <laughs> so our first real theme if you will is of course gender and misogyny classic classic there's so much of it in this movie that i did not remember yeah coming into watching it i was like uh phil yeah phil and his annoying stuff but 
the misogyny is worse than I had remembered because I think Meg was kind of iconic for me. Yeah. The misogyny is pretty gross. So mm-hmm. much so that that is what makes me most hesitant to rewatch the movie. Sure. Yeah. I don't want to have to watch those, quote, jokes around men's entitlement to women. It's <laughs> sure. so distressing. Yes. <sighs> and yet Disney definitely thought it was doing a feminism with this movie. It really does. Yeah. yeah. They thought they were being so thoughtful and progressive, but it's all wrapped up in the patriarchy and <laughs> capitalism. Yeah. So we see this nod to 90s third wave feminism right in the opening lines. The muses interrupt Charlton Heston, <laughs> who then says, you go, girl. I have an errands extra about this, but we gotta gotta do it right now. So we gotta do it right now. Charlton Heston, longtime American actor, best known for his role as Moses in the Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. very commanding voice. Mm-hmm. When he came in for his recording session, he was asked to approve his lines. And he was like, these are all great, but there's one that I just like don't get. And he was unfamiliar with the phrase, you go, girl. (laughs) So he thought the line should instead be, go ahead, young lady. (laughs) Wow. What an expected twist from an old white man in 1997. Continue. Yes, he is interrupted by the muses. (laughs) Oh, I mean, just the use of that phrase is an attempt to set the tone and indicate to the audience that we get it. Yeah, we're we cool. get women <laughs> and women. Yes, good, strong. They can interrupt men like Charlton Heston. Yeah, for sure. You can interrupt Moses. <laughs> That's right. So it seems like the film's biggest swing at feminism is in the character of Meg. Because Meg is sassy, okay? Yeah. (laughs) She's a damsel. She's in distress. She can handle this. Yeah, that line is the most well-known line from the film. Tell me what you think about Meg, what your take is on her now, even though she was this iconic figure for you in your youth. (laughs) So I think I have had like a full circle experience with Meg as Mm. I did the research. Okay. So yeah, as a kid, I was like, yes, Meg is is my icon. Um, I will never fall in love with a bumbling man. (laughs) (laughs) But then like doing the research and seeing all of the ways that Meg is a damsel in distress the movie continuously undercuts all the things she is trying to do. She is basically enslaved to Hades, mm-hmm. has to do his bidding as much as she professes to being a strong, independent woman. Mm-hmm. But I think I have come to the conclusion that Meg is still kind of a feminist icon. I actually really like Meg. I think she grows a lot over the course of the film, Mm -hmm. does the best she can in the circumstances that she's placed herself in. Mm. And it's the film around her that keeps undercutting her. It is Disney. It is the male characters Mm -hmm. who are doing all of this, putting her in her place. Mm -hmm. Every time she says something about her being independent, it is shown by her being restrained by Hades or mm-hmm. saved by Hercules. So I think that Meg still is 
feminist and is a strong female character, but the film is not feminist. Right. And that's helpful to divorce the character from the film. There is a moment when Meg literally saves Hercules's life mm-hmm. by rescuing him from the falling pillar. Mm-hmm. There is some effort there to show Meg as this strong character. I think they do depict her as a character with a lot of agency, with her own goals and desires and hopes and dreams. She is a very full character in terms of her development. I really want to touch on Meg sacrificing herself for Hercules because I think that moment has so many layers. Mm. So Meg makes a choice and pushes Hercules out of the way of the pillar. It hits her instead and she is gravely injured, though it's unclear because she does not look injured at all. (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) She's dying from internal bleeding and that's it. (laughs) So this gave her agency, made her the role of the rescuer for a minute versus she's been like the damsel all along. But then immediately it puts her back in the damsel in distress role at the same time because now Hercules has to save her. Mm. And she literally dies so that he can become a true hero. Mm-hmm. But then he sacrifices his life for her in return, mm-hmm. which actually makes him the true hero. Yeah. And she doesn't really get anything. There are some people who are like, why didn't Meg turn into a god or a goddess? And I was like, well, like Hercules was a god to begin with. But it feels like they're kind of one-upping each other in sacrifices for love, Mm, which is mm -hmm. a competitive approach to love that I appreciate. (laughs) Um, But Meg has this moment of agency when she makes this choice and she saves the man she loves. And it still just puts her right back where she started as damsel in distress. Yes. So frustrating. Yeah. So frustrating. There's a good quote from DeSessa in another interesting article about mostly like gender in this movie, where DeSessa says, quote, Meg is robbed of her life for daring to swap the roles of the rescuer and the rescued. She is only allowed to live when those roles have been correctly replaced to their traditional genders through the restoration of her life by Hercules. Mm-hmm. So she's not allowed to be the rescuer. Right. She must return to a subservient role where she is reliant on men mm-hmm. and everyone's gender roles are appropriate again. And now we can have a happily ever after. Now it's okay. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Rude. Rude. <laughs> the film seems to suggest that Meg is only bitter because she's been mistreated by men. Mm. That bitterness will evaporate as soon as she finds the right man who will treat Mm. her well. It it kind of perpetuates this idea of hashtag not all men. Yeah, okay. You know, Meg is sort of this representative of like radical feminists who are considered to be man-hating. There are men's rights activists who would suggest that the solution to... (laughs) The man-hating of feminists is to subdue those people. Mm. So that all seems very dangerous to me. Mm. I don't think the film gives appropriate weight to the mistreatment that Meg has experienced in terms of 
that mistreatment being a product of misogyny. Yeah. It's very much depicted like, well, her ex-boyfriend was a jerk, which, yes, he was. And now, Mm -hmm. you know, Hades, god of the underworld, what are you going to do? And, oh, right, you know, (laughs) Phil, he's a super creep. But then the film doesn't make any commentary on how a patriarchal culture of misogyny is what is going to allow all of those different male characters to behave in those oppressive ways. (laughs) Yeah. Like the men set Hercules up to be the person that Meg has to fall in love with. Hercules is the only halfway decent guy around And Meg isn't given any other choices. Right. It's like she falls in love with Hercules because he isn't a total raging misogynistic asshole. Like, he's not actually that great of a guy. In fact, during their initial exchange, when she says, I'm a damsel, I'm in distress, I can handle this, he immediately ignores her. And charges in anyway. Yeah. He also gets really angry and hits Phil in a way that I find really scary. Because when people hit Mm. one person, they are more likely to hit other people, including the women in their life. Anyway, I think Hercules is not as great as Meg maybe perceives him to be. But as you pointed out, she has literally no other options. (laughs) Yeah, yes. And so Disney is just sort of celebrating Hercules's mediocrity then as a romantic partner. His respectfulness of her is played up in a way. I don't know if it's sexual naivete mm-hmm. or like fear or what is the motivation for him. But like in the scene where Meg is supposed to be seducing him to get the secret of like what his weakness is, he takes her little strap of her dress and like pulls it back up from where it's fallen down and he inches away uncomfortably. But he's also still clearly like romantically interested in her, but would never take advantage of her. It's such an <laughs> annoying commentary, too, because she is indicating that she is interested in him sexually. And he's like, well, I, I would never because I'm a nice guy when really she doesn't need you to decide whether she wants to engage sexually with you. If she is indicating that and mm-hmm. you have her consent, like it's not your job to respect her virtue. You don't put limits on Mm -hmm. her because of what you think is right. I think Hercules is the uncomfortable one who needs to give consent here. (laughs) No, that's fair. That's very fair. (laughs) So, like, agree that, like, if he was sexually attracted to her and, like, ready to take that step, this would be a moment. And if he didn't, that's kind of weird and virtue signaling and obnoxious. But, like... I think Hercules doesn't know what to do with Meg and also thinks they're too early in their relationship for this step. No, you're right. You're right. That's a very good point. And yes, Meg should be respecting his boundaries. Absolutely. On that note, I do think it's kind of cool that the film doesn't make Meg's sexual experience a problem. There is no other Disney princess that... I mean, she's not a Disney princess, which we can also talk about. Acknowledged. We don't have to. Well, but I think it's interesting because like purity and whatnot, I think might come into it. But Meg, as a female lead, has had a romantic Mm -hmm. partner before. And we don't 
see that of like any other woman. And then they find their one and only their true love, their perfect prince, and they get married and everything is great. But Meg has had a partner before and the movie doesn't seem to care. Hercules is allowed Mm. to love her. Like we don't look down on her for that at all. And they get Mm. there happily ever after. And she's still very complex, which I think is cool. And she gets to be a hero at the end. I just really love that there's no... There's no problem. The movie Mm -hmm. doesn't seem to problematize the fact that she has had a past romantic partner in a way that you might expect from Disney's past with women. Yeah, that is a really, really good point. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make her unworthy of Hercules in a way that you think it might make a woman unworthy of a god, quote unquote, if we're going into morality, politics and whatnot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Another angle to this conversation of sexuality are the blatant depictions of sexual harassment throughout the film what observations do you have about that phil is terrible yeah (laughs) the first time we meet him he has his head stuck in a bush because he's peeping tomming on a bunch of nymphs Mm -hmm. who are bathing in a pond And when they realize that he's there, he like chases them, tries to grab them. Mm -hmm. And then as they leave, he says, they can't keep their hands off me. And then one of them slaps him across the face. Mm -hmm. That's Phil. Like that is Phil. Phil throughout the movie thinks he is entitled to women's bodies. These women are here for his enjoyment, gets pissed off whenever any woman tries to say that she's not interested or that you are being a creep. Set a boundary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he flirts with Meg, calls her sweet cheeks <laughs> the first time they meet. Places himself on her lap. Yes. She shoves him off her lap and... He's pissed. He's Yeah, he's pissed. She also at one point asks him if Hercules is for real. Mm-hmm. And Phil like says yes. And later is like, by the way, sweet cheeks, I'm real too. Mm-hmm. Gross, gross, gross. Big incel energy coming from Phil. <laughs> yes. And I think the, the worst one, the one that like truly made my skin crawl is when Hercules has achieved fame and is in his big estate in mm-hmm. Thebes. These young women who are dressed like modern 90s girls kind of sort of like they are not in ancient greek dress they're in like mini skirts and crop tops Mm -hmm. (laughs) they break into the estate and are attacking (laughs) basically hercules one of them grabs his sweatband that like obsession with pop star kind of thing Mm -hmm. hercules asks phil to like create a distraction phil tells them all that like He went that way. He went out the other door and the girls go running out the front door of the estate to chase Hercules. And Phil does this little chuckle and his face like darkens as he like looks at them run away. And then he like chases after them Mm -hmm. like, ooh, now they're mine kind of vibes. Mm -hmm. Oh, gross, 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 gross. (laughs) It's so gross and it's so problematic. And then... All of this bad behavior is rewarded at the end of the film Mm -hmm. when a god kisses him. Right. Which then seems to indicate that all of that behavior was okay. And really, he just hadn't found the right girl. Right. And it's Aphrodite. So, like, 
Phil somehow, this is his reward for all of his mm-hmm. rejections throughout the film. Yeah. And then like Aphrodite is made to feel, I don't know, even more sexualized. Like maybe Aphrodite would go for Phil cause she's loose. I don't know. Like yeah. ter- those terrible things of her like mythological stories. And then also that after being rejected by so many women, Phil gets, the most beautiful woman of all who is also a god and she kisses him she initiates he doesn't even have to like do much to ask Mm -hmm. it validates everything else he did throughout the film and all his rejections were worth it because now he gets aphrodite i know it's so terrible All of this is supposed to be funny to clarify the film does not think that any of his behavior is problematic it thinks that all of his behavior is hilarious Mm -hmm. because boys will be boys am i right worth noting before we move off of phil just that in that first conversation we were talking about where meg does the i'm a damsel i'm in distress i can handle this later after they have defeated the centaur She's complaining about men to Hercules and she says, you know how men are. They think no means yes and get lost means take me, I'm yours. Mm -hmm. And Hercules gives her this confused look because he doesn't know anything about the world. And then Meg says, don't worry, maybe Shorty here can explain it to you, referring to Phil. Mm -hmm. Like she has already clocked him as the creeper that he is who definitely thinks no means yes and has shown that throughout the film. Yeah. Yep. For the record, folks, the only thing that means yes is an enthusiastic yes. Wow. What a novelty. (laughs) Who would have thought? So another way that sexuality is depicted in the film is as a tool that can be weaponized against the person's consent. So Hades uses Meg against her will, uses her sexuality in order to achieve his evil aims. And Mm -hmm. Meg doesn't have to consent to that. She's literally enslaved to Hades. So there's like some sex trafficking vibes happening here. And obviously Hades is the villain. So we as the audience are supposed to understand that that's not an okay thing to do. But weaponizing sexuality in that way is still something that's very problematic and is not handled with a lot of nuance or care in the film, or at least in a way that I would like it to be. It's also interesting that as part of Hades' whole shtick of being the the schmoozer, he also consistently refers to Meg as sugar, sweetheart, babe, like all these things that you would use as like pet names for like someone you're in a relationship Mm -hmm. with. So constantly sexualizing her, but then also they are meant to denigrate her and put her in this subservient role to him. So just constantly knocking her down a peg, reminding her of her place. She is his little minion. He says at one point and her role is to serve a man. Mm hmm because of an agreement that she did make willingly, supposedly. Well, and that last point is crucial, I think, because the dynamic of sex trafficking often begins with 
the person being trafficked agreeing to something. But then that initial choice is used against them and they don't have the opportunity to adjust their level of consent as the trafficking continues. Just because someone Mm -hmm. agrees to sell sex for something initially doesn't mean that they're consenting to any similar behavior thereafter, but that's often how sex traffickers justify their behavior. Yeah. So yeah, Hades is um is kind of Meg's pimp here in a way that yeah, feels really icky for a children's movie. Yes. Yep. <laughs> and then I think to your earlier point further undermines Meg as a character with strength and agency and who's a feminist icon for us. <laughs> yeah. Yep. One other gross moment of (laughs) seduction I suppose Mm -hmm. is towards the end of the film when Hades is laying his trap for Hercules uh, he gets pain and panic to disguise themselves as a female Pegasus Mm -hmm. to lure Pegasus away and then like trap him in a room so that he can't help Hercules but this female Pegasus is like the most scantily dressed, sexualized, <laughs> right? Like has a quote unquote like tramp stamp of a heart on <laughs> its hind quarters, uh-huh. and then they don't. I wonder if this was cut honestly because of the way that the cuts between two scenes work. Mm-hmm. But the lady Pegasus is wearing like a lace saddle uh-huh. that looks kind of like lingerie. And then when they get into the room that she has lured Pegasus into, the saddle is now on the floor as if she like stripped it off for him. Sure. Also, she has like makeup on. Like it's it's, it's such a ridiculous <laughs> looking horse. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but again, using this like weaponized sexuality to get Pegasus to come. Also, Pegasus immediately is attracted. It's very like Thumper in Bambi. (laughs) Yeah. Like, of course, the man would not see any problems or have any questions and is just lured in by this. It's this weird message about women or or female entities, (laughs) characters, Having some sort of weird power over men that, yeah, like women are able to entrap men with their sexuality as though men have no agency in those situations, mm. like as though Pegasus wasn't able to refuse just because yeah. that horse was so sexy. <laughs> the messaging around it is just very bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. Such a weird scene. (laughs) Right. Like, it seems like there were a lot of different ways that pain and panic could have subdued Pegasus to prevent him from helping Hercules. And, like, that didn't need to be the way that they did it. In fact, there are probably a lot funnier ways that they could have figured out to do it. Yeah. I mean, things we think are funnier. I bet the filmmakers thought this was hilarious. Hilarious. Of course, of course. Right. (laughs) Well, should we talk a little bit more about sexuality in this film sure a lot of the women specifically meg and the muses and some of the female gods are drawn in ways that really emphasize their physicality specifically their breasts 
and Mm -hmm. really small waists for most of them. The muses in particular, their dresses show cleavage and large slits that reveal a lot of their legs as they're moving and dancing around, which in the context of Greece makes sense. I think that is probably how a lot of people dressed back then because it was very hot. (laughs) (laughs) So like, okay, that's fine. But also, that's not necessarily the norm in 1997. And it seems to function more to objectify and sexualize them than it does to signal anything about like sexual freedom or what's your read on that? I think the whole movie is through the male gaze. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I wonder if that could be because mostly men are the ones who worked on this movie. A lot of men. Yeah. I mean, you know, every time I watch the credits, there are more female names every time. That's true. That's true. Still, yes, it is mostly men, especially the animators are still mostly men. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just the thinness of the waists that is completely impossible especially the contrast of waist to bust or waist to hips is just like you are putting the supposed like male ideal beauty standard for women up on this screen. Again, like even if the characters themselves behave in ways that are feminist or positive or empowering or whatever, the way their body is drawn, the movie is is taking that away from them by making them not even proportioned as a real woman could be. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just feel like a man slapped a pretty girl on the screen, even if the script was like trying to make her seem like so much more. Yeah. Obviously people have all different size bodies and shapes and that is wonderful. But I think it is noteworthy that Meg appears thinner than almost any other princess we've ever seen. I think she conforms to the super thin, supermodel version of a woman's body that was very popular in the 1990s. Yes. Yeah. Embodying and promoting that standard of beauty. Mm-hmm. I also noticed that the hair of most of the muses is really smooth in texture. Yeah. There's one muse who does seem to have more of a natural texture of hair, but otherwise just more emphasis on white standards of beauty with like white hair texture that's like smooth and flowing as opposed to Mm -hmm. more kinky or textured. Right. I also wanted to mention the fangirls that you brought up before. They are really dismissed as an inconvenience or an annoyance. They're bothering Hercules. Meg refers to them as a, quote, sea of raging hormones. (laughs) So they're really not given a lot of respect, even though these are the fans who propelled Hercules to fame and are pretty responsible for his economic success. So I just thought it was worth noting how that entire category of character is really dismissed in the film, the way that I think teenage girls are often dismissed in popular culture. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is supposed to be a boy movie, but like in Disney's eyes, they want everyone to see this film and love it and make them tons of money which I assume includes 14-year-old girls who might 
feel this kind of way about in sync at the time. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's your audience. The point that you just said about this being a quote boy movie, I think is interesting because the movie is then telling those boys that teenage girls with their hormones don't pay any attention to them. They're a nuisance, but hypersexualized women are the ones that you should be paying attention to. So what's going on there? <laughs> I don't know. They forgot that they were all adult men again. <laughs> like, that seems to happen, doesn't it? Yeah, they forget their audience a lot of the time. Gosh, we just have so much to talk about so around much. gender. That really does seem to be the the theme that's coming through for me. I wanted to mention Hera. Mm -hmm. There is a really great article about gender in Hercules by Primo. And Primo wrote, quote, Hera is portrayed as helpless and as nothing more than a grieving mother, whereas Zeus can be seen demanding and instigating action in response to crises. These characters in Disney's version of Hercules exemplify both classic stereotypes and modern constructs of men and women, physical versus emotional, strong versus incapable, and tough versus beautiful, end quote. Yeah, coming from the mythology where she is emotional and powerful and dangerous. And yes. Like now she's just a, a weeping mother, and that's all she does. Yeah, I, that point specifically makes me understand why all of the mythology fans were enraged by this film. It's like, look at how they treated Hera. Yeah, and Zeus gets to be the king of Olympus and the greatest god of all time. And he's just seducing women left and right normally in history. Yeah, yeah. Other important female characters are the Fates, which are depicted as these old crone characters they're disgusting with scabs and hairs and boogers <laughs> and yet they're really powerful in their ability to end human life and see the future but they can't possibly be both powerful and beautiful mm -hmm. impossible impossible <laughs> and Hades, the way he gets what he wants is he decides to flirt with them and suddenly they are putty in his hands. All that power and all their protecting of like the timeline of the world <laughs> just falls apart and they give him exactly what he wants. Yeah, because ugly women will do anything for the attention of a man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even if they share one eyeball between the three of them. <laughs> Are we ready to transition to talk about fatness? Yeah. We talked already about the way that a lot of women's bodies are sexualized in this film, but there are two fat characters who stick out in particular. One is one of the muses. Talia, the muse of comedy. Wow. Look at yeah, you. Yeah, I know. Doing your homework, knowing all of the muses' names. Oh, I just know hers because I knew we would talk about her. <laughs> and the fact that she's the muse of comedy. Of course, the fat one is the muse of comedy. Yes, the fat one has to be the funny one. That's always how it works. Mm -hmm. And that is problematic. We have mm -hmm. seen time and again Disney using 
fatness for comedic effect and not taking its fat characters seriously. Yep. This is one more instance of that. The other depiction of fatness that I wanted to highlight is the Cyclops, who is depicted as very fat. And he's also depicted as this grotesque character. And Mm -hmm. his fatness is very much a part of that. The way that his skin and size are shown are meant to communicate that fatness is disgusting. Mm. And that hurts, you know, that's like a really cruel way to depict that. It stood out even more to me because of the way that thinness is used throughout the film to depict physical attractiveness. Yep, that is super fair. Yeah. Okay, with that, I'm ready to move on to heteronormativity. Great, lead the way. (laughs) (laughs) So... Wait, I like that phrase. I'm ready. I'm ready to move to heteronormativity as if the default was anything else. <laughs> I know it's very brave of me to <laughs> to talk about heteronormativity as, as a heterosexual person. Um, so mm. thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. And um, yeah, let's let's dive right in. So Part of what I was reflecting on as I was doing a teeny bit of research in Greek mythology is that there were so many gay relationships in ancient Greece. That was (laughs) such a big part of the mythology. Hercules was known to have a lot of male lovers as well as female lovers. So, by the way, Meg was his first wife who, as we mentioned, he murdered. And then he went on to have a lot of other relationships with both women and men. But obviously, there is no explicit reference to any same-sex couples at all throughout the movie really promoting that myth of heteronormativity as the default. Mm -hmm. And of course, the mark of true heroism, as we said, for Hercules, is leaning into this heterosexual love that he has for Meg. Right. Yeah. Not saving towns full of, you know, innocent people. He probably saved like a lot of children. Yep. No, it's doing something for love and like love is good and all but so is saving like hundreds of people yeah exactly (laughs) the heteronormativity i think is then reinforced with a couple possible homophobic instances Mm. and i will say these are not things that occurred to me when i was watching the film but were brought up in that Primo article that I mentioned. And I think they're really interesting and worth discussing. Cool. Okay. First of all, Primo points out that Hades doesn't have any partner and doesn't really seem that interested himself in any romantic or sexual pursuits, which that's fine. He also is literally on fire. So he's flaming. (laughs) Perhaps Mm -hmm. referencing the flaming gay male stereotype. Ah. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Okay. This sort of confirmed bachelor type of character. He also is the bad guy from the underworld Mm -hmm. trying to take over. We're queering villains still. Yet again. Queerness is, is evil. Right. As Disney would have us believe. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Primo also highlights some homophobia in the depiction of pain and panic mm. that I thought was really interesting. So Primo wrote, quote, at the end of their tumble, this is referencing the beginning when Hades first goes back to the underworld, panic's phallic head forks penetrate pain long enough for them to be seen by Hades in a vulnerable homoerotic state. Shortly thereafter, pain and panic grovel before Hades in an unequivocally humiliating manner. This repentance alongside the transformation of both men into worms could evince that deviation from heterosexual norms is undesirable and necessitates forgiveness or even remediation. (laughs) Getting Beauty and the Beast flashbacks. (laughs) Everyone's gay. (laughs) Oh, I do not buy into this one. Fair. Remembering the images of this scene, like it's just physical humor. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's fun. I thought the scene itself with the physical comedy was very funny. That played well for me in the movie. So I agree. I think it is just intended to be funny, but it's an interesting read for sure. I mean, it's always fun to see how many ways people can see penetration in Disney films. (laughs) I think that might be our next mini episode there. The theme of penetration. I'm going to be so uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, okay, so so that was all that I wanted to say around the topic of heteronormativity or homophobia. Shall we talk about capitalism? Ooh, yeah, let's do it. I just like right off the bat want to point out one of the most anachronistic and self-referential lines in the whole movie or series of lines. Mm-hmm. When pain and panic appear to Meg as a rabbit and a chipmunk. Uh-huh. And Meg says, oh, how cute. A couple of rodents looking for a theme park. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's the most in-joke Disney thing they could have possibly done about Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Like you said, there's so much self-referencing. And as you pointed out in your discussion of the history, it seems like Disney was trying to show themselves as a good sport, yeah, making fun of themselves. But some critics have pointed out that they're actually just helping to sell their merchandise. Yeah, like we're dismissing it. How we're so funny, making fun of ourselves, but at the same time, go buy our crap. <laughs> right. It doesn't hurt them at all to make these jokes about themselves. And the whole song Zero to Hero is talking about how he is a hero because he's rich and famous (laughs) yeah and obviously that's not the moral of the story right like being rich and famous isn't what turns him back into a god but there's a really good quote from ward in mouse morality that i think speaks to this ward writes quote The plot seeks to compensate for this negative definition of heroism by having Zeus refuse to accept it. But the music is so much fun and so high energy that it makes it attractive in contrast to Zeus, who is presented as an abstract bag of wind. (laughs) Which message will kids be attracted to? What part of the video are they likely to replay? The fun music. It's easy to decontextualize Zero to Hero and let it stand on its own apart from the plot that contradicts the song's message. 
Yes, that's so factual. That is the song that I listen to the most. Of course. I mean, well, probably go the distance. Let's be honest. But when I'm trying to have a good time, like we put it on our our road trip playlist. Uh We made that a while ago. It's the most fun. And that is where all of the imagery is coming. And shortly after, Kirk does his I'm an action figure moment. And like Disney made (laughs) made Hercules action figures. Of course they did. So now the kid Mm -hmm. can reenact that moment from the film. Yeah, so that song as a standalone offers the commentary that eh, it actually is being rich and famous that is going to make you popular and and heroic, at least within the context of our society. And the right way to appreciate our heroes is to buy their merch. <laughs> ah, yes, that's right. That's Please right. and thank you. Proceed to the Disney store. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I think it might be time for some Aaron's Extras. Aaron's Extras. Woo. Cool. Great. I have some that I'm excited about. Great. Do you remember when we talked about Aladdin, how I mentioned that there would be Ron and John cameos? I did, and I looked for them, and I didn't it find them. Did it do it? <laughs> That's very fair. They're pretty fast. So the Ron and John cameo characters are on top of the arch as teenage Hercules is pulling the cart overflowing with hay into the town. Oh, okay. So they're like among the builders and they, you get a quick glimpse of their faces like looking terrified <laughs> as Hercules approaches. <laughs> so that's where they are in this one. Great. Jim Cummings did some voices for this movie. Did you notice any of them? Did any of them stand out? None of them stood out as like, oh, that's definitely Jim Cummings. Mm-hmm. No. So I think the most obvious one is the elderly Thebian. <laughs> okay. Who mm-hmm. is just Tigger. Like <laughs> his voice is basically Tigger's voice. He also voices the, quote, tall Thebian, um, who's the <laughs> the big guy who does most of the talking in those like crowd scenes. Oh, Okay. And he's also the centaur Nessus. Oh, okay. Sure. So there's a lot of him and he gets a lot of speaking roles in this film. Yeah. Great. There's also a Wilhelm scream. (laughs) What? (laughs) I didn't hear it. What is that? It's when the Cyclops Titan starts attacking Thebes looking for Hercules. It's among the chaos as people run away. There's a Wilhelm scream. Okay. One day you're going to catch one. And excited. it won't be a goofy holler. It'll actually be a Wilhelm scream one day. Yeah, I believe in you. Thank you. <laughs> so Disney was hoping to have an open air viewing of Hercules at Nick's Hill in Athens with oh. food and drink, kind of like the Chelsea Piers party that they had mm-hmm. after the premiere. But the Greek government declined after the film was panned by critics and the public in Greece. Sure. A writer named Siren Byrne with a Greek newspaper wrote, quote, that this is another case of foreigners distorting our history and culture just to suit their commercial interests. Sure. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) Okay, last one that 
I think is very fun, like super niche Disney trivia. One of Meg's lines became mm-hmm. a kind of in-joke for the filmmakers while working on the film. Mm. When Meg is leaving after first meeting Hercules, she says, well, thanks for everything, Herc. It's been a real slice. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Ron and John loved the way she said it in her audition. And mm. after she'd been cast, they called her in and wanted her to re-record that scene since there was too much ambient noise on the original recording because they were in like a small New York studio and like you could hear the traffic. Mm. So Susan spent the entire session trying to recreate exactly how she'd said that line, (laughs) but they were never satisfied with it. Oh my gosh. So they ended up taking forever to digitally clean up the audio on her original recording from the audition. And that is the line that you hear in the final film. Wow. (laughs) The hand motion that Meg does in the film as she says slice is also Mm -hmm. directly taken from Susan's hand motion in her audition. They loved that. Oh, wow. And then at the end of the credits of the film, there is this note, quote, Thanks to the entire Walt Disney feature animation support staff for their dedication, ingenuity, and good humor. It's been a real slice. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So that was cute. They love that line. It comes up all the time with like Disney bloggers talking about this movie. It's like very fun little bit of Disney trivia. Yeah, it is. Ta-da! Aaron's Extras. Aaron's Extras. (laughs) This isn't an extra so much, but it is just something that I really liked and wanted to talk about. When the Thebians are talking about all the disasters that have befallen them, one of them holds up their cat Snowball (laughs) and says, we rescued Snowball from the fire or whatever. And then at the very end of the film... There's a shot of that same group of characters and Snowball is there wearing a bunch of Hercules merch. (laughs) And I just thought it was really cute. That's adorable. (laughs) All right, Aaron, what grade would you give this movie based on 1997 audiences? Critics were pretty split. Box office, clearly bad. I don't know, just maybe Disney is just kind of on the outs, like popularity moving a little bit down with each film Mm -hmm. so i think i'm gonna give it a c Mm. wow okay it's just average yeah what do you think for 2022 i'm gonna give it a c minus okay yeah is what i was thinking because we talked about all the good parts mostly the music some of the performances but visually it's just okay Mm. i think after hearing your history of the animation folks might enjoy watching it with that in mind and so go for it but i wouldn't necessarily show this to your kids because i think it promotes a lot of very harmful gender dynamics yeah so eh, c minus as much as it pains me I think that is very fair. This is definitely one where you have to be like ready to have a conversation about that joke and that joke and that joke. Yeah. What about a recommendation? Yes, I have a recommendation, which is for a book. I think this is the first time I've recommended a book. 
which is The Song of Achilles by Ooh. Madeline Miller. God, I've been wanting to read it for so long, and you I want to read Cersei, read and I haven't read either of them yet. And okay. every time I see it in an airport bookstore, I think about <laughs> buying it. And I'm like, no, I have too many books on my TBR as it is. That's very fair. I only read it because it was for book club. Ah, yeah. But I loved it. It is really beautiful and features a gay romance, which I think we always need more of in our media. And for what it's worth, I read that one first and then I read Cersei after, even though Cersei was the one that got all the press. And I didn't think Cersei was as good mm. as The Song of Achilles. So Heard it here first, folks. <laughs> That's right. It's my two cents. Well... Join us next time for Mulan. Ah, let's get down to business. <laughs> let's do it. Let's defeat the inevitable racism and Orientalism and misogyny that Yay. is in that film. But it's also a good one. In it's a good like, one. It's a good main movie. I like that one. I've seen that one lots of times. Yep, 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 yep. <sighs> All right. Well, in the meantime... Email us your thoughts at hellodeconstructingdisney at gmail.com. Or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at decondisney. We might have some cool concept art that we're going to mm -hmm. post because I found lots of cool stuff while doing my research. Yeah. Uh, and then also it would be lovely if you could rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It's been a real slice. Slice. <laughs> Ta-ta for now. Hey!